This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 82. Hey everybody, happy new year to you. I actually had intended to get the next couple of episodes out to you before Christmas, but if you remember me saying I was so excited to have all of December to do design work and to prepare for 15 Minute Magic and I'd really cleared my schedule for this wonderful relaxing time, then you can probably guess what happened. What was I thinking? What always happens when we hit the brakes and press pause? I got sick. I got tonsillitis twice over Christmas. I'm just coming out the other side of it now. So... Here we are in the new year, but at least I have some awesome episodes ready to kick off this 2020 season with you all. So today's guest is Nir Eyal. He has written a book called Indistractable, and I'm going to let him describe it in his own words. He does a way better job than I ever can. But I really wanted to speak to him when I came across this book because I think the topics he talks about are so key to so many of us. As you know, with 15 Minute Magic, I'm really digging into why we procrastinate, why we're not getting stuff done. And he takes this to a different level by looking at why so many of us are chronically distracted in our day-to-day lives. If you're someone who struggles with your smartphone, maybe feels like you have an addiction to it or that social media is a problem for you, definitely stay listening because he has some really great insights and wisdom for anyone who's thinking that way. Hi, Nir. Welcome to Hashtag Authentic. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. It is wonderful to be talking to you all the way from New York. Could you please give us a quick rundown on who you are and what you do for anyone who is hearing you for the first time? Sure. So I am a behavioral designer, meaning that I design experiences typically facilitated through some kind of technology to help shape people's behavior to form good habits in their life, as well as teaching people how to break the bad habits in their life that may also be facilitated by technology. And could you give an example of what that might look like um, in someone's kind of day-to-day for someone who's not heard of these terms before? Sure. So on the good habit side, uh, um, I help products like FitBod, which is an app that helps people get into the habit of exercising in the gym. I help them make their product more habit forming or Kahoot, which is a, an educational software. It's actually the largest educational software company in the world. Uh, they help, uh, I, they use a, my model uh, to help kids get hooked onto in-classroom learning. Uh, I've worked with the New York Times to get people to the habit of reading their newspaper every day. Uh, so those are that's how I can help companies build good habits. And then in terms of the other side of the story, in terms of these bad habits, uh, because I my background is in understanding the psychology around how to design for habits, uh, I can also uh, help people understand the Achilles heel of distraction to make sure that they do what they say they're going to do in their business and in their life. It feels like actually you've kind of got a bit of a secret superpower here and we're all very lucky that you've chosen to use it for good. I suspect there's people with similar backgrounds to you that are perhaps using some of these, some of this ability to influence, to encourage us to do things that are less productive and wholesome. 
Well, there, there are lots of people out there who want you to do all sorts of things with your time, whether it's the, the television station that wants you to spend time watching TV so they can sell you commercials or yeah. whether it's Facebook or Instagram or, uh, you know, your, your boss, your kids, your spouse, even lots of people want your attention and your time. And, uh, you know, whether these things are good or bad is really in, in, in the up to the, the person whose time is consumed. And so it's really up to us to decide how we want to spend our time, our attention and our life. Right. So how do we go about doing that? I know that you've just written a book kind of on this exact topic. Yeah. So it really all starts with understanding what is distraction. And the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So the opposite of distraction, most people will say, if you think about it for a minute, what is the opposite of distraction? Most people will say it's focus, Mm -hmm. but I actually think that's not exactly right. That the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That in fact, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, things that you are not doing with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. Even the things we think, and maybe especially the things we think, that uh, are productive many times can themselves be distractions. Uh, For example, this used to happen to me all the time. I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, here I am, it's 9 a.m., I'm gonna get started on that big project, I'm not gonna procrastinate, I'm gonna get to work, here I go, but first let me check email. (laughs) <laughs> right. First, let me let me do that one thing on my to do list that's kind of easy to do. Let me get that out of the way first. Let me do that real quick. And I need some coffee. And, and exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let me just empty the trash. Let me just do this. Let me just do that. And that one thing I plan to do does doesn't get done for 20, 30, 40, maybe an hour later. It still hasn't gotten done. <laughs> And so I would argue that that, those are the most pernicious forms of distraction, the distractions that trick you into thinking that's what you want to do. But what's happened is distraction has tricked you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. Yes, this is so key. Yeah, that leads us into this this constant uh, madness cycle of, of responding to the urgent and the important stuff doesn't get done. And so anything can be a distraction. And conversely, I would argue that anything can be an act of traction. So I'm not a fan of this rhetoric we hear these days in the media that, oh, video games are a waste of time and social media is, is, uh, is, is something you should avoid. And you know I think that's ridiculous. There's nothing that says that playing Candy Crush is somehow morally inferior to watching three hours of football on TV. What's the difference? There's no difference. Right. Reading on your phone is the same as reading a book. Like, why is it more morally virtuous if it's on paper versus a screen? That's exactly right. And so a lot of people have this technophobic uh, moral panic that we see happening today because it ironically gets a lot of clicks for the news publications. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people love to demonize whatever is new. Uh, And we don't think about the old technologies, which can be just as distracting. Or the fact that the, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you plan your time, there's nothing wrong with enjoying any of these things, as long as you use them on your schedule and according to your values, not according to some company's values or some t- company's schedule. Right. It's about that mindful choice to engage with them rather than feeling like you're being sucked in by them against your will. That's right. So if, if there's one mantra I want people to remember from my work and from this book, Indistractable, 
It's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So everything we're talking about here when it comes to distraction, this is really a problem of impulsiveness. It's doing what we say in the moment at the expense of our long-term interests. And by the way, this is not a new problem. Plato talked about this 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia. So 2,500 years before the smartphone, people were complaining about distraction. It's not a new problem. And, and he wondered, you know, why do people do things against our better interest? And so the reason is, is that we are impulsive. We have an impulse control problem. Now, that's not something that means that, that you're broken or that something's wrong with you or you're defective. It just means we don't have the skills to deal with these, these, uh, these impulsive reactions, these what I call internal triggers in a healthier manner. But the good news is there is no distraction that we cannot overcome by simply planning ahead, by simply understanding what am I going to do when this distraction rears its ugly head? When I'm tempted to do something I'll later regret, what am I going to do about it? How do I plan ahead? Because the fact of the matter is, you know, if you wait until the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, <laughs> you're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit, you're going to smoke it. If you sleep next to your cell phone on your nightstand, you're going to pick up your phone first thing in the morning. It's too late. Right? You don't want to depend on willpower and self-control and self-discipline. That stuff doesn't work in the moment. What you want to do is to have a plan, to have a, a system, uh, uh, to, to use forethought, this amazing gift that we all have as human beings, to see into the future, to plan ahead. And if we do that, there is no company, there is no algorithm, there is no secret, secret manipulation formula. And I know because I study both sides of the equation, you are much more powerful than they are. This has been such a learning curve for me. There were points when I was reading your book, actually, prior to speaking to you, I was cheering out loud because over the summer, I actually got a diagnosis of ADHD, the inattentive variety of ADHD. Um, and so I've been digging so deep into all of these things of like, how do we focus? How do we stay on task? How do we get into that beautiful flow state? And how can we stay there? Um, and it all kind of came down to these things that you're talking about, in particular, this thing of planning in advance and using our higher self, our prefrontal cortex to make decisions that then when our more kind of primitive parts of our brain try and override them for us, we've already got that framework in place to that's right to take us in the direction that that our higher self has already decided we want to go in. Yeah, beautiful. I couldn't have said it better myself. But if, if you don't mind me asking, so it's interesting. I didn't write the book specifically for people who are struggling with ADHD, uh, but it's interesting that you found that the techniques are, are also helpful. Absolutely. And actually, there's so many parallels with the things that are taught in, because there's very specific types of therapy available to people with ADHD to develop better skills of executive functioning. And mm -hmm. so many of the, the things that you reference show up in different ways in those therapy models. I think I, I always think it's fascinating when different people from different disciplines come together and come to the same conclusions because you kind of feel like you've hit on a bit of a universal truth when that happens. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, everything in the book, I, these aren't just my personal uh, pet techniques. I, everything in the book is backed by peer-reviewed studies. It was very important for me. You know, a lot of authors in the self-help personal productivity space, they, they just kind of spout off, well, this is my, <laughs> this is my own personal technique, right? Wake up at 4 a.m. And, and take a shower at, at, uh, in freezing water, right? Okay, why? Because it works for me. Well, I, I need some evidence, right? So, so uh, you're right. So many of, uh, you know, there's 20 pages of citations in the book and, and many, many peer-reviewed studies. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that many of these techniques overlap. And, and, and the more, the better, right? That, that's really good to hear that, uh, that they're effective for, for many different modalities and many different people. Absolutely, because we're all neurodiverse in our own ways, aren't we? That's right, yeah. 
I'm interested, actually, one of the topics that I've really been digging into is the idea of procrastination. And I noticed that's not a word you use an awful lot in the book, mm -hmm. but it feels like there's so many. Is it the same thing? Is it a different thing to distraction? Is it just the way that we look at it that decides whether we class it as procrastination or distraction? Yeah, great question. So um, all procrastination is a form of distraction but not all distraction is procrastination. Uh, yes. So let me, let me give you a good example. So um, it, when I was, so, so one of the seminal moments in my life that told me I needed to reassess my relationship with distraction was when I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this, this, this time together where we could just, you know, be together and, and just some quality time. Uh, and we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together and one of the activities in the book was to ask each other, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said, because in that moment, I was looking at my phone. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that uh, she realized that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she left the room and decided to play with some toy outside. And that's when I really decided, wow, I, I have to, I have to figure this out. If I'm struggling with this, uh, then I'm sure a lot of other people are. And, and, mm -hmm. and this is the superpower I would want, right? If I was going to answer this question to my, for myself, boy, I just want the power to do what it is I say I'm going to do. If I say I'm going to be with my daughter, I want to be fully present with my daughter. And, and so in all aspects of my life, and that's really what being indistractable is all about. It's about living with personal integrity. It's about doing what you say you're going to do. Simple as that. And, and so in that example, when I was with my daughter, that wasn't procrastination. Uh, I wasn't delaying anything. I just wasn't present. I wasn't doing what I said I was going to do. I said I was going to spend quality time with my daughter, and here I was checking work email or Facebook or I don't know what on my phone instead. So that would be an example of distraction, doing something I didn't intend to do, uh, which isn't necessarily procrastination, which is more about delaying what you need to do. I find it really fascinating as well that most of us – wouldn't dream of not following through on our word to somebody else. So if we say we're going to do something, nine times out of 10, we're going to do it for them. But when we make promises to ourselves ahead of time, it becomes so much easier to break them and to be sucked into these distractions. Such a great point. Yeah. If you, I, I like to, I like to use the celebrity test, right? Think about your, if I asked you, who would you most want to have dinner with, right? Think of a celebrity or uh, an inspirational role model or somebody that you'd say, boy, wouldn't I love to meet that person for an hour? You would probably drop everything to make time for that person. If they called you up one day and said, Hey, how would you like to grab a bite together? And yet when it comes to the meeting with the most important person in our life, ourselves, right? If we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of other people. We lie to ourselves all the time. And, and this was definitely my story five years ago before I wrote this book. I would say I was going to exercise, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. I would say I would eat right, but I wouldn't. I would say I was going to work on that big project and I would procrastinate. And, and so in all these areas of my life, I was a liar to myself. And, and I didn't realize what a toll this takes on us. Because you know, one of the things I, I, I rail against a bit in the book is the to-do list. That I think for most people, uh, the to-do list does nothing but reinforce that they are incapable of doing what they said they're going to do. This happened to me day after day. I would have this long to-do list, and day after day, I wouldn't get done what I said I was going to do on my mm -hmm. to-do list, right? I'd get maybe you know five, six things done on my to-do list, and I'd still have a list of 30 more things I didn't do. <laughs> so day after day, I would recycle all these tasks I didn't finish. And so at the end of the day, instead of feeling proud of myself, I always felt like I hadn't done enough. 
I could have done more. You see all this stuff that's not done on my to-do list that didn't get done. And so it just reinforces this self-image of you are not capable. You don't abide by the promises you make to yourself, which is why I advise a very different technique called time boxing, uh, which is backed by thousands of peer-reviewed studies now have found this technique to be very, very effective, which is just, just planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And that gives us in our life, the ability to look at our calendar and say, ah, what I plan to do today, what is on my calendar is traction. Anything else is distraction. And my only goal shouldn't be to finish anything. This is why to-do lists so often backfire on people. Because when you see a task that says, finish this, finish that, and it takes you longer to finish, which you know studies have found people are horrible at, at estimating how long a task takes. <laughs> it's something all people tend to be really bad at. And, and so when we don't finish that task, we feel bad about ourselves as opposed to when we use a time box calendar, uh, we, the only goal is to just work on that task for the amount of time we say we will without distraction. That's our only metric of success. Did I do what I said I'm going to do for the time I said I would do it? That's it. And so after every time block, you reinforce your identity as, ah, I did it. I'm capable. I am indistractable. That becomes your new identity. There's a couple of things I really love about that technique. That's something that I've kind of adopted over the last few months. And the first thing is like how much stress it takes out of everything. Because if you have a huge to-do list, like I'm, I'm launching a new program at the moment and there's so many things on mm. that task planner that need to be done, but I'd never have to think about them all. All I have to do is turn to the page in my diary for that day and see what the tasks in front of me are. And I know that if I just keep showing up and keep honoring those promises to myself... I will get everything done without having to freak out about how much yeah. there is and when it's going to happen. Isn't that so funny? It's so counterintuitive that when people hear about this technique of time boxing, their typical response is, I don't want to constrain my freedom. Yeah. I want to be free to be spontaneous. And it turns out to be the exact opposite, that when you do time box your calendar, that when you have some constraints on your time, you actually end up being more creative, you get more done, and you feel more free because you only need to work on a task for as long as you say you will and have faith that because you have that time in your calendar, the task will get done. As opposed to every day looking at these gigantuan tasks and thinking, oh, when am I, I don't want to start even because it's so big. Never mind. I'll wait till tomorrow to do it. It's so true. Like scheduling is freedom. It sounds like constraint, but it turns out. And I, I was so resistant. I think it's a real ADHD thing actually to hate schedules, but really need schedules in order mm -hmm. to get anything mm -hmm. done. Um, right. And it, it's, it's transformed so many areas of my life because as you talk about in the book, in order to fill your time, you kind of have to schedule in all the other stuff too. You need to schedule in the exercise and the self-care and the time with your family so you know what time's left over to put right. those work blocks in too. And the fun, specifically yes. the fun, right? I, what, what I would encounter every day is I, I'd finish my day and I'd, I'd look at my to-do list and I'd still have more to do because I wasn't using time boxing back when I, before I wrote this book and, and figured out how important it is. And I'd say, you know what I really want to do is just to watch some television, right? But I couldn't because I felt guilty. And, and so I would either just say, okay, screw it and do the, watch television and feel guilty about it. Uh, and, and so now I don't have to feel guilty anymore because even watching television is in my schedule. Email and social media time is in my schedule. Every day from 8 to 9.30, I have email and social media. That's in my schedule, and I can do those things without 
guilt, right? That is exactly what I plan to do with my time. Uh, I can go on Instagram. I can go on YouTube. I can go on Facebook. I can enjoy myself without feeling guilty that I should be doing something else because now I've turned a distraction, something that I used to do continuously throughout the day. I would check these devices. I would check Instagram, check Facebook. Now I know, oh, nope, that time is coming in my day. So I turned what would otherwise be a distraction into traction. How do you plan this out? Do you have a phone calendar? Do you use a paper planner? I'm curious what it actually looks like. Yeah, so you can use any uh, scheduling tool you like. I, I happen to use Google Calendar, but I actually heard this question quite a bit from folks, and so I built an online tool called a Schedule Maker. Uh, I built it's totally free. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't even have to put in your email. It's completely free. I'll give you the link in the show notes. Uh, and the idea is that it's it's a very stripped down version of a calendar that you can put in time blocks. Uh, it makes it very very easy to start one of these time box calendars. And what you want to do is just print it out and have it next to you so that you can refer to it. The important thing is it needs to be something that's always accessible for you so that when you ask yourself, wait, what am I supposed to be doing right now? You always know what is traction and everything else is distraction. So the medium isn't as important, uh, but I do understand that for a lot of people, they just want to know, how do I get started? What's the easiest tool? And the easiest tool is the one I built specifically, and I'll give you that link in the show notes. It's on my blog, nearandfar.com. Great. Yeah, I do think people are going to listen and be like, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, that's a great place. And, and by the way, the, the next step, which is very important, is to turn your values into time. So now you're going to, so you know, once you take the first step of looking at your calendar, your week ahead, what you want to do is to start asking yourself, how do I turn my values into time? And, and you want to do this in the three life domains. First is you. Okay, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. So make time for the important values in your life that have to do with taking care of yourself. Do you have time for proper rest, right? Many people say they, they all know, everyone knows how important sleep is, but do you have a scheduled bedtime, right? We make bedtimes for our kids because we say that's a healthy thing to do, but do you have a bedtime? Is that in your calendar? And more importantly, if you know it takes you 30 minutes to prepare for bed, well, do you have that time scheduled to know, okay, I need to brush my teeth, take a shower, do whatever it is I need to do to make sure I'm in bed on time. Do you have time for exercise if that's important to you? Meditation, prayer, whatever it is that's important to you, make time for it in your schedule by actually turning your values into time. Put time for that on your schedule. Then the next ring is our relationships. We know that relationships are absolutely important for our psychological well-being, and it tends to be something that we neglect. And, and I argue that we need to make regular time for the important people in our life, whether it's our children, our parents, our significant other, our friends. Do you have regular time scheduled for those important people in your life? The next domain, the last domain, which is where most people start, is the work domain. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's actually the last ring. And there we need to ask ourselves this question of how much time do I want to spend on reflective tasks versus reactive tasks. And let me explain the difference real quick. So reactive tasks are things that we need to respond to. And this is typically done in, in a state where our attention is fractured. So phone calls, emails, uh, Slack messages, meetings, we need to be on call, so to speak. Now, some jobs are 100% reactive. For example, if you work in a call center, your job is to wait for a call, you pick up the call, you respond to it, you put the phone down and you wait for the next call. That's a 100% re reactive job. Now, other jobs are almost exclusively uh, uh, reflective. So, for example, a computer engineer needs to be in the zone. They need to focus. They need to concentrate without interruption for almost their entire day. Most of us sit somewhere in between on that spectrum. We need some time for reactive time, and we need some time for reflective time. But 
The mistake is that almost none of us take the step of scheduling that reflective time. Mm. So even if it's an hour, an hour and a half, 30 minutes even of time to think, if you need time to think in your day to do your job, which I would argue almost all of us do need that time to think, that time has to be scheduled and protected. Because if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. Your entire day at work is going to be reactive. I use the Michael Hyatt Full Focus Planner. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah, one of those. Yeah. And that has sections for all of these areas. Make sure that you have rest and personal life. And every single day, I never fill those bits in and fill in all the work bits and nothing else. And so it's <laughs> a bit of a wake-up call reminder to me that, yeah, yeah it's, it's very easy. It's very easy to get sucked into thinking work is the only thing that matters. Right. It is. It is. But I, I would say the first place to start is with is with the self, right? Because if when you're properly rested and nourished and fulfilled, your your work output is much better as well. You don't you don't burn out. You can sustain your focus and attention much better when you take care of those other critical pieces. And that piece you said about uh, the reflection time is so key. And it took me the longest time to realize that even something as simple as like reading or just sitting and staring out of the window is as productive in the long run as the time spent sat at the computer actively typing. Right, right. The, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. And, and so by budgeting that time, you can do it without feeling guilty. And it, and it turns out to be a huge competitive advantage because very few people make that time for reflection, to just think, to strategize on a regular basis. And so that time really needs to be in your calendar as well. Well, it's something that I think you do switch on in the book is how many of us are very uncomfortable with with no distraction, with sitting just with our thoughts, with nothing else to preoccupy them. Um, right, And, and yeah. it seems to be something that's easier than ever. Like I'm old enough to remember, you know, when you had to get a bus without an audio book or a podcast to keep you company or when you had to walk somewhere and there was no device to keep you company. And now those all those opportunities are kind of gone and you can fill your day constantly with stimulation if you want to. Right. And, and this is this is the the price of progress in many ways. I mean, I, I, I you know, we, it's easy to talk about it now uh, and think about, oh, remember the days when we used to feel boredom? <laughs> um, but I also remember being un very, very bored. <laughs> and I didn't enjoy it for any particular. So I don't miss I don't it. Go, I don't want to go back to that world. Yeah. I like the fact that I have audiobooks on my phone and, and GPS on my phone and uh, Kindle on my phone. And I like having the access to these things. Uh, but it's it just becomes more important for us to develop this new skill set to make sure that we can get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. And and part of the good thing, I think, with, with these technologies is that uh, there are ways that we can use them to to really enhance our life in, in ways that we wouldn't otherwise expect. So, you know, the book is full of uh, of, of myth shattering, right? Myth, myth busting. And one of the myths that I bust is that you can't multitask, which turns out not to be true. We've all heard that, right? That mm. you can't multitask, you can't multitask. It turns out that's not exactly right. You, you can multitask if you do it in a specific way, which is called multi-channel multitasking. And the way this works, so we know that you cannot have the have input on the same channel uh, from two different sources. So for example, you can't uh, understand what's happening on two different podcasts 
just by putting, you know, two different speakers in your ear. Yeah. It's very hard to keep track of what's going on on two episodes. You can't watch two television screens at the same time. Uh, you can't do two math problems at the same time. That's very difficult. You have to do what's called task switching to go from one to the other to move your attention between one and the other. And that, of course, degrades our performance. However, while you can't do this task switching is very detrimental to our attention and, and to our focus, what you can do is multi-channel multitasking. So you can have you can do one thing on one channel and do something else on a different channel. So for example, one of the gifts of these technologies is that you can absolutely nourish yourself by taking a walk or doing some kind of exercise, doing something in the you domain while also listening to this podcast or an audiobook for example, or walking with a friend and nourishing that, that relationship domain. So if you know how to, to multitask the right way, you can actually uh, overlap some of these domains at the same time. And that is a key ADHD feature, actually, B like being able to stack the tasks up so that you're keeping the stimulation level really high. So for me, like podcasts are fantastic because something like vacuuming or cooking on its own can sometimes feel not stimulating enough. But as right. soon as I add in an audiobook or something else at the same time that's kind of activating another part of my brain, then I then it becomes really enjoyable on both levels. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank goodness for these technologies if we use them correctly, right? <laughs> because chances are you wouldn't do the the, the vacuuming if it wasn't for the audiobook. <laughs> exactly. And and yeah, I love that you are so pro technology because I really am too I always say like the internet changed my life and I was waiting for smartphones to exist long before they did because I knew I had this this gap in my life that they would fill but I know a lot of people certainly a lot of people who'll be listening to this feel like their phone is the problem and mm. so I'll see a lot of people say things like oh I'm trying to um, take like two weeks off my phone so I don't get distracted or those apps that will shut down all your social media apps for like so many hours to mm -hmm. allow you to concentrate. What would you say to people who feel like the smartphone is their issue? Yeah, so that's actually where I started uh, this journey. My first step after that story I told you with my daughter, the, the first thing I did uh, when after that happened was I said, okay, well, maybe it's really the technology's fault. I, I sincerely wanted to blame the technology. <laughs> Believe me, I wanted an easy answer to say, ah, that's the evil villain. That's what's <laughs> causing all my problems. And so I did that. I actually, uh, I went on Alibaba and I bought myself a, a flip phone with no apps and then, and I got rid of my iPhone and then I bought a word processor so that I could do my writing on this 1990s word processor. They don't even make them anymore. I had to buy it on eBay. Uh, and, and all it does is, you know, you can write on it and then you can plug it into a computer to download the, the text. Wow. And I thought, okay, here I go. I've, I've got, I've excised all the technology from my life. That was the problem. I will not get distracted anymore. And of course that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work because I would see that book on the shelf and I'd say, oh, that, you know what? I've been meaning to do some research inside that book. Let me just read a couple chapters in there. Or uh, let me organize my desk. My, my desk needs some decluttering. Or let me take out the trash. That, that Let me just do that real quick. And I kept getting distracted. And I, I even tried these 30-day digital detoxes where they say, okay, just get rid of the technology for 30 days. By the way, for the vast majority of people, that's you know, virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. our, our livelihoods depend on using this technology. It's much easier said than done, <laughs> but I tried it and it didn't work and it didn't work for the same reason. So I used to be clinically obese. And, uh, I remember I did something similar when I, when I went on these fad diets, I would say, okay, no sugar for 30 days, no fat for 30 mm -hmm. days, no fast food for 30 days. 
And you know what happens on day 31, of course, right? You, you, you eat everything, right? You make up for lost time and it all comes, all the weight comes back. And it did this again and again. I would be on these yo-yo diets and it didn't work for dieting and it doesn't work for our digital devices because we're not addressing the real cause of the problem. The real cause of the problem of, of why I was obese, I, I hate to say it, it wasn't the food. It wasn't the big, bad fast food industry. It was that I was eating in excess because there was stuff going in my, on in my life that I was looking to escape from. I was eating my feelings, and I hadn't figured out how to let food just be food and not be an emotion regulation device. And that's what we do with our phones. That's what we do with these distractions. We turn on the television and watch the news because we want to escape our life for a few minutes by worrying about some other people's problems. We check Facebook because we want connection and to ease our loneliness. We use uh, Google because we feel uncertain. Uh, we, we feel bored, and so we go on Reddit or Pinterest or uh, check sports scores, whatever the case might be. We are always trying to regulate these uncomfortable sensations. And so if we don't face this fact, if we don't understand why we are looking for distraction, that the cause, the root cause of the problem goes much deeper than whatever screen we happen to be looking at or whatever food we happen to be eating, that the problem actually starts from our inability to cope with these uncomfortable internal triggers. And so what I want people to learn, as I learned what the research says, is that we can interrupt these impulses by understanding the causes of, of why we get distracted, and then having tools in our toolkit to deal with those internal triggers, those uncomfortable emotional states in a healthier manner so that they lead us towards traction rather than distraction. I work with a coach called Brooke Castillo, and she talks about this very same concept. She calls it buffering, which I think is a really good term for it because I think of like a train with buffers on the front and it's just shunting the pain further down the tracks. Right, and, and right. everything can be buffering. All those things you've just said, food and alcohol and sleep. And whenever we hit something just uncomfortable, we put this buffering in, in place because it, it short term solves the problem. But long term, it kind of the problem is still right. that. Right, right. And, and part of the problem is I think that the, the self-help personal productivity industry tells us that we're supposed to be happy all the time, yeah. right? We're all sold happiness, happy everything, that if we're not satisfied all the time, if we're not content with everything, then we're broken somehow. And this is such a myth uh, because think about it from an evolutionary basis. If there was ever a sect of homo sapiens who were satisfied with life and happy all the time, that would not be a beneficial evolutionary trait, right? Our ancestors probably killed and ate them. <laughs> right? that, that would not be a good thing. We, we needed to be perpetually perturbed to keep us creating and inventing and hunting and improving our lot in life. And so the first thing to realize is that feeling bad is not bad, that there's nothing wrong with you, that you feel boredom, loneliness, anxiety, fatigue. These are normal human emotions. And, and you're, it's not your fault that you feel these emotions. It's about what we do with those emotions. Do we let them lead us towards distraction in, a, in an attempt to escape those feelings? Or can we use them to lead us towards traction, to drive us forward, to help us create and invent and be our best selves by leading us towards these acts of traction? The program I'm starting in January is um, for people who've got businesses who struggle with procrastination and we're all kind of it's daily prompts that will come through to people's phones for a single 15 minute activity that they're gonna we're all gonna do together to take action in our business and the very first prompt that I've written that's been written for several months actually is 
to identify that discomfort and just to experience it on purpose. Because I think we, so often it's such a subconscious thing, isn't it? We don't even necessarily look directly at that feeling. And I spotted myself doing it just the other week when I was invited to record an intro to my podcast to go on someone else's podcast. It was a a quite a high profile one and it felt so overwhelming. I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And I realized Mm -hmm. when I sat down and looked at it, I could list all these fears and doubts that I had about recording this and how it might go wrong. But I hadn't, once I looked at those directly, it was really easy to go, okay, well, I can just work through that. I can just feel those feelings and do the work anyway. So you're, you're hitting on exactly one of the techniques I talk about in the book uh, around reimagining our triggers that uh, according to acceptance of commitment therapy, which has been around for decades, reimagining the trigger, seeing it differently is, is an amazing first step that by simply listing out what it is that you're feeling. And so the book actually comes indistractable, comes with this distraction tracker where the assignment is to simply when you get distracted, if you can just write down what it was that you were looking to escape from. Uh, I checked email when I should have been working on a big project because I was feeling anxious. Uh, I was feeling stressed, lonely, fatigue, whatever it might be. If you can just list out the emotion, uh, that is a, a critical first step because what you're doing is you're interrupting the impulsive response to escape with something, right? Whatever that something might be, that's how we break these bad habits. Because I guess it's engaging that prefrontal cortex again, isn't it? It's bringing back in the rational higher self and stopping ourselves responding on instinct. Exactly. Perfect, right? My final question to you then, knowing everything you now know after this huge deep dive into all of this, how do you talk about focus and distraction with your daughter? How old is she? Mm, she's 11. She's 11. And, and you know, what should we be teaching our children? What, should, what in an ideal world would we be teaching in schools? Yeah. So, so there's a whole section in Indistractable about how to raise indistractable kids. And it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty meaty topic. I've not got uh, but I think if, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but I think, I think there's a few things that, that we can think about first and foremost, you know, children, and I, I, you have a six-year-old, right? You said, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this as well as I do, children are hypocrisy detection devices. <laughs> right? They scan their surroundings like little robots looking for where we screw up as parents (laughs) and they love to call us out. Yeah. So, so the number one best thing you can do as a parent to teach your kid how to be indistractable. And, and by the way, this is the skill of the century. If you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. Their world is going to be only more distracting than our world. It's not going to be less distracting. It's going to be more potentially distracting. So it's imperative that we teach them how to manage distraction, how they can become indistractable. And so the best thing you can do is to become indistractable yourself, to set a good example. We can't tell our children, stop playing Fortnite while we're checking Facebook. It doesn't (laughs) work that way. We have to walk the walk. And it turns out that we can actually use the same four steps to become indistractable, to help our children become indistractable. And and one of the best tips I can give parents is to be a little vulnerable here, is to tell your children, look, I also struggle with distraction. I know that it's tough sometimes to do what you say you're going to do. Mommy, daddy also struggles with this. This is a challenge we can do together. And then we can use these four basic steps I talk about in the book. The first step is to master the internal triggers. So for, for parents, it's imperative that we understand what's the internal trigger that's driving our kids to use technology to an excessive extent. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of technology. In fact, not even one study, not even one, has shown that two hours or less of extracurricular screen time has any deleterious effects. As long as it's age appropriate, 
there's no deleterious effects. So, uh, the, the, so what we really want to talk about is the excessive use, is the three, four, five hours a day. Mm. That's when we start seeing some problems. So we want to understand why kids use tech excessively. And there's, there's a lot in the, in the book about what, what I call psychological nutrients, about how psychologists have found that when kids are not getting what they need in the real world, they look for these things in the virtual world. And so it's very important to understand what psychological nourishment your child is missing and may be looking for online. So that's about understanding their internal triggers. And then the next step is very pragmatic. It's about making time for traction. So just the same way we talked about planning our day, you know, our children's days, most of them, if they're school-aged, is, is planned during school. But even outside of school, we want to make sure we schedule their day and, and help them schedule their day. It's imperative that, that they have autonomy and agency and control over their time as well. And that might include time to to play on the screen, right? Whether it's an age-appropriate app or a game or whatever it is that they want to do, as long as it's age-appropriate and 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 they have agency over how much time they want to spend. And most importantly, that they also regulate when that time ends. So in my case, when my daughter was, was uh, five years old, uh, and by the way, when she was just two years old, I remember some of her favorite words were iPad time, iPad time, iPad time. <laughs> she would constantly scream for iPad time. So when she was five, we sat down with her and we said, look, you know, th this technology, we didn't want to scare her. We didn't say it's rotting your brain and it's, you know, addicting you. That That's silly because we, we don't want her to be technophobic, right? Her job in the future is going to depend on her tech literacy. So what we did instead was we say, look, the cost of using these screens is an opportunity cost, right? It's the opportunity to play with your friends. It's the opportunity to be with mommy and daddy. It's the opportunity to engage in other forms of media, right? And so how much time do you want to spend on, on the screen per day? And so she said, we thought she was going to say all day. Instead, she said 40, she said two episodes, mm. two episodes on Netflix is 45 minutes. So we said, okay, fine. But how will you know that those 45 minutes are up? How will you hold yourself accountable to what you yourself want to do with your time? And so she came up with this idea. We used to have this microwave that was below our countertop. And so she would go up to the microwave and she could type in 45 minutes, hit the timer, and then the, the microwave would beep until her time was up. And we said, no, okay, that's fine. Uh, as long as, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep an eye on this. And as long as you can keep track of your time, then go for it. Because remember, we're not raising children, we're raising future adults. And so we want her to have that skill to regulate herself. That's very mm. important. You know, now actually it's, it's incredible. She actually uses technology to regulate her time. Uh, she says, uh, Alexa, set the timer for 45 minutes or <laughs> Uh, she uses Apple screen time tools. And so now the beauty of it is I'm not the bad guy. I'm not the one shouting at her and saying, get off your device. It's uh, the rule she set for herself. So that's all about making time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. So we want to make sure that, that we help children with all of these pings and dings and rings. One of the best tests of whether a child is ready for a technology is can they turn it off? And the, the metaphor here is a swimming pool. So swimming pools kill thousands of children, but that doesn't mean we don't teach kids how to swim. No, quite the opposite. We teach kids how to swim, and, and, and when they're ready, we let them you know, swim by themselves. And the same goes with our technology. So the way a child should demonstrate that they are old enough to use a technology is do they know how to turn it off? Do they know how to use do not disturb when they do their homework? Do they leave their phone 
a char- at the charging station when they come to dinner? Do they know how to use it properly? If not, then look, we're the ones who pay for the cell phones. We're the ones who pay for the technology. And so we have the right to say, you know what, you're, I'm sorry, you're, you're not ready for it. You haven't learned how to use it properly. Um, part of that as well is re- removing anything that pings or dings from their bedroom. That we know that, this, that the, the psychological negative effects of too much technology on kids, it's not the device itself, it's what the device does to their sleep. And so, you know, I, I implore parents, there should be no technology that makes any kind of noise that might interrupt their sleep at night. That includes old technology like television and radios and telephones, right? Anything that pings or dings and rings should not be in a kid's room that interrupts sleep. By the way, I think the same rule should apply for adults. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then finally, we can prevent distraction with packs. This is the fourth step. And this is what we can do ourselves as well as for our kids. It's teaching kids how to make these these contracts, what we call a pre-commitment. And ironically, we can actually use technology to help us prevent getting distracted by technology. So there's one app I'll tell you about real quick that uh, my daughter and I both use. It's called Forest. And this app is brilliant. It's just a very simple app. Every time you want to do focused work, when my daughter does homework, when I need to concentrate on a project and I I, I wanna do so without being distracted, I open up this app. I dial in how much time I want to do focused work for, and I hit a button that says plant. Now, when I hit plant, this cute little virtual tree is planted on my screen. And if I pick up my phone and I do anything with it, the little virtual tree dies. And so it's just a little reminder it's a, of this promise I've made with myself to not pick up the phone, to not get distracted. That's an example of a pre-commitment, a pact that I made with myself to not let myself get distracted. And so we can use these four techniques. Our children can use these four techniques. This is how we become indistractable. And how amazing to grow up with that skill set already cultivated instead of reaching like your 30s and suddenly realizing you have no control over what goes on in your day and having to start from scratch. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is really the skill of the century. What, what a competitive advantage over the other kids that don't know how to regulate their attention, their time and their life. My previous job before I did what I do now was in speech therapy and the amount of children I saw who struggled with attention and listening or difficulty regulating their screen time, all of those things were so, so common. And I remember a piece of research that I'm sure you've come across too that said TVs in the bedroom were so much more detrimental than TVs in the living room, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which goes straight back to that thing about technology (laughs) in, in the sleep space. Yes, yes. And it's it's something that doesn't get enough attention these days because we're so obsessed with the latest technology, with the iPhones and the apps. And, and this technology of television has been around for a long time, and it's pretty pernicious as well if we don't know how to use it properly. Absolutely. So, Nia, where can people find out more about all of this, having now listened to your genius in this episode? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so my website is nearandfar.com, and near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R, and far.com. And if you want some more information on the book, there's actually a website for it too. It's called indistractable.com. And uh, at indistractable.com, there's all kinds of resources. For example, there's an 80-page workbook that you can get there that's complimentary. Uh, If you do end up buying the book, please keep your order number, whether you buy it at your local bookseller or on Amazon, wherever you might buy the book, keep your order number. If you enter that order number at indistractable.com, I'll give you access to a complimentary video course, which you can get as well. Uh, So make sure you keep that order number and enter it at indistractable.com. And we haven't mentioned, but you have a previous book as well. Right. So that's that's called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And that's for folks who are building technologies to help people build healthy habits in their life. 
Okay, so I will link to all of these things in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. I've been listening to the audiobook version because that's how I roll and it's awesome too, so I'll make sure I include a link for that. Thank you so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you. The show notes for this episode are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 82. And I'm going to include all the links that Nia talked about as well as everything that popped up in our conversation. Both of us would really love to hear your thoughts on this episode and keep the conversation going. So come and find us on social media. The handles are there in the show notes. And let us know how distraction shows up for you, what strategies you've used to combat it, what you're going to be trying in 2020 to make it even better. Thank you so much for listening. I will speak to you next time.